Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. Welcome, everyone. I really appreciate everyone coming uh, for this extremely exciting interview. I'm, I've been thrilled. Uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while now because I'm joined by Dr. John Bergsma, uh, who is an Old Testament scholar, uh, someone I have a lot of respect for. I've read a lot of his work. He's done a lot of really great and interesting work on early dating of the Pentateuch. Recently, he just wrote this fantastic book uh, that I thoroughly enjoyed called Murmuring Against Moses. Uh, and you can see it was endorsed by Joshua Berman, who is another great scholar. And it was just a phenomenal book arguing for the early date of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, which we don't really hear that often. Often we hear that this is a very late, late work. The Pentateuch comes about during the time of Ezra or in the exile, but it's not, it doesn't go back to the, the time period that we would basically put Moses or uh, some of the, the early prophets, that is. But there's actually a lot of really great evidence out there arguing for it is. And so I thought it'd be great to have uh, Dr. John Bergsma on my channel to talk about it. So, uh, Dr. Dr. Bergsma, how are you doing? Thank you for coming on my channel today. Absolutely, Michael. It's, uh, it's a delight to be on. Not many people interested in doing a deep dive into the tall weeds on this kind of issue. Uh, so I'm tickled that, uh, that you noticed the publication of the book and uh, interest in the subject. It is very important. Uh, obviously, it is very important, although, um, you know, there's so many other uh, hot issues in religion and theology and within the church at this time that distract people. But, um, yeah, this this is a, a long-standing and uh, very fundamental uh, question that has uh, profound implications for theology. So I'm glad that, that uh, you have an interest and that we get to talk about it. Well, you're in luck because my audience loves this stuff. Uh, we hear... <laughs> all the time from non-Christians that these don't go back that they can't go back past the the, the monarchy. If, if anything, maybe it comes during the time of Josiah, but this doesn't go back. There's no historical Moses. This is all very late documents. And so we hear this, but we don't see a lot of scholarly arguments uh, against it, arguing for the early date of the Pentateuch. And so when you and other scholars like Benjamin Kilker or Joshua Berman, Kenneth Kitchen, Put out this stuff i want to make sure that we get it out there because not a lot of people shine a light on it and so we i definitely want to get into this so start by telling us a little about about your academic credentials and what got you interested in this topic of the dating of the pentateuch yeah you know let's start with the second half of that question first what got me started uh interested in, in the dating of the pentateuch was when i was about maybe eight years old and uh, was wandering through my dad's library my dad was a, a dutch calvinist uh pastor. And uh, I pulled a random book off his shelf that was about the Pentateuch. And basically, it was a popularization of the documentary hypothesis. And I browsed through that. And it freaked me out. And I went to my dad and said, you know, Dad, what's what's this? And he's like, Oh, that's just, you know, some old German theories. Nobody pays attention to that anymore. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> my dad was wrong. <laughs> that was still very much current. And um yeah, but th that that piqued my interest. And then later, um, when I was uh, uh, going through seminary 
and um, I had I showed some academic promise in seminary, and so um, the the suggestion was brought up that I go on for a for a um, a further degree for a, a theology master, a master of theology, THM, which is like a stepping stone to a doctorate. And then I had to choose what to focus in, and I was praying a lot. And what keep, what kept coming back to me uh, were the passages from the Gospels where. Uh, Jesus emphasizes that his own ministry is entwined and based on that of Moses. You know, so they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not listen to them, neither will they listen if someone rises from the dead, for example. Um, you know, passages like that, statements from the Lord to that effect. To that effect. Um, so I, I was really, you know, kind of moved to... Uh, focus on Old Testament specifically, and then within the Old Testament on the Pentateuch, because it seemed to me that it was foundational for the entire edifice of the Christian canon. And if if that if that foundation was cracked, you know, the whole edifice is not going to stand. And so few people want to touch it, you know, because it 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 requires uh, expertise in so many different fields. You know, you have to have you have to be knowledgeable about linguistics. You have to have a grasp of ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, obviously, you have to have theological training and a whole lot more even to grapple with this issue. And uh, so it's just avoided and, and folks prefer to, you know, gravitate towards gospels research, which is understandable and, and, and fine. But I felt called to, to focus on this. So uh, my credentials are I have a, a you know, a, a, a BA in classical languages, uh, Greek and Latin, um, preparing to study the scriptures in the original language and get that linguistic uh, foundation. Um, I took an MDiv, uh, Master of Divinity degree, which is your standard um, professional degree for clergy at Calvin Theological Seminary. I uh, received that in 1998. And then I also completed a, a THM in Old Testament theology, specifically writing a thesis critiquing uh, uh, Walter Brueggemann's um, Theology of the Old Testament, which at that time was recently published. And I received that uh, degree in 1999. And then the fall of 1999, um, I entered the doctoral program uh, in Christianity and Judaism and Antiquity at the University of Notre Dame on a presidential fellowship and uh, completed that uh, program in four years. Well, I, I was materially uh, completed four years, but then defended uh, the dissertation in my fifth year after I had been already in Steubenville working as Dr. as Dr. Hans' research assistant for a year. Um, but uh, yeah, I received that uh, the doctorate in uh, theology with specialization in Christianity, Judaism, and antiquity, which is basically how they styled their biblical studies program um, in um, March, I believe it was. Um, Defended March, yeah, something you know, spring of uh, mm -hmm. two thousand four. Um, so that, that completed my doctoral work. And since then, I've published uh, in the area. Um, I have what, I, what at least I consider to be an important um, uh, essay in a festrift for my doctor father, James Vanderkam, on the relationship between um, the Holiness Code and uh, the Deuteronomic Code, um, which, which is like a, a high-resolution look at the shared vocabulary or lack thereof between what's usually styled the Holiness Code and uh, and the Deuteronomic Code, uh, for you know our listeners who are less familiar, 
there's a so-called priestly source in um, the Pentateuch, and then a subset of the priestly source is generally identified as roughly, you know, Leviticus 17 through 26, which is identified as having some linguistic peculiarities, and that's often designated as the holiness code. And there's different theories about when it was written and what its relationship is to Deuteronomy. But what I did in an essay in this festschrift for my uh, doctor fodder was show that there's almost no shared vocabulary between the Holiness Code and Deuteronomy. And yet um, so many scholars claim that the Holiness Code is the last thing written of the Pentateuch and that it's drawing on Deuteronomy. But there's no evidence of borrowed language from Deuteronomy into the Holiness Code. And uh, it was a limited study, um, uh, but, uh, but I think an important one. Um, so that, that was published. And uh, I have other publications um, with uh, Oxford and Continuum and um, uh, Westminster John Knox and um, a, a whole bunch of uh, other publishers. And I've published over 20 books on the Catholic faith and scripture, including uh, the, the massive uh, introduction to the Bible Old Testament with Ignatius Press. Um, and then as we were talking before the show, Michael, uh, I have two more important, in my opinion, essays contributing to the dialogue about the composition of the Pentateuch in um, two uh, essay collections, uh, one being uh, Paradigm Change in Pentateuchal Research. Got uh, you got your here. copy there. Yeah. <laughs> and then another in, um, yes, yeah, Exploring the Composition of the Pentateuch, which is uh, a BBR uh, bill, uh, Bulletin for Biblical Research uh, um, uh, yeah, um, supplement series. Um, so I've been working, you know, Michael, you know, speaking of my credentials, for the past 10 years, I've been working with a working group of Pentateuchal specialists that has been convening uh, every other year at Andrews University, the premier university of the Seventh-day Adventist uh, communion. Uh, up in Berrien Springs. And, uh, you know, Catholics, uh, Jews, uh, Evangelical Protestants, and Seventh-day Adventists, we've been meeting together and comparing notes and trying to lay the foundations for an alternative paradigm for understanding the composition of the Pentateuch other than um, the standard uh, documentary hypothesis. And I think that we've made some real progress and we're working now on a, a uh, textbook that would be suitable for uh, undergraduate use and even, um, you know, early graduate use like in seminaries um, that presents a more balanced view of the data on this issue than, than students are usually presented with. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah. So basically for the audience, Dr. Bergsma is very well qualified to be talking on, the, on this. And for those who are just kind of confused about what the documentary hypothesis is, this is a video I did last year, which scholars like uh, Joshua Berman and Benjamin Kilker helped me with. Uh, but this is generally the documentary hypothesis. This is the general framework. It's the idea that the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, were not really one unified composition. Uh, the, originally, they were different sources. The J source stands for the Yahweh source. E stands for the Elohim source. P stands for the priestly source. And D stands for Deuteronomy. And there is so much variation, as I cover in this video, as to which scholar, how they date these, how they uh, talk about how when they were combined. But generally, it's this idea that uh, these four sources were combined. Originally, there were two creation accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and then they were combined. There were two flood stories, and they were stitched together 
to get this full composition. There were two accounts of uh, God making a covenant with Abraham. Uh, there were two accounts of the plagues in Egypt, all this stuff. And so a lot of the work that Joshua, uh, excuse me, that scholars like Joshua Berman or Dr. Josh, uh, John Bergsma have done has been challenging this general idea. And his recent book, which I want to add here, uh, Murmuring Against Moses, which we're going to talk about today, does present a lot of evidence against this idea, but also arguing that the Pentateuch itself goes back quite early. It's not this idea that it was written, put together in the exile, or doesn't come back to the time of Josiah. So Dr. Bergsma, can you talk a little bit about your book, what this book basically covers, uh, and just go a little bit into it for us, and then we'll get to some specifics after that. Yeah. So this book is a collaborative project between myself and uh, my close friend, Jeffrey Morrow, um, who's a Catholic intellectual historian who has been teaching at Seton Hall University in Newark, New Jersey, um, for quite some time. And again, uh, Jeff's, you know, forte is um, uh, he's an intellectual historian, especially a historian of Catholic theology and the characters and the, the thinkers within Catholic theology, and then especially within biblical studies. So he's, he's really a specialist of the history, the intellectual history of biblical studies, the characters, the personalities that have contributed to this field. And this is a, this is a very niche area, and a lot of people don't know anything about that, about what was motivating these scholars, what their historical context was, what their agendas were. But that's very important material to understand because it colors um, their, their results. And you have to understand that a lot of times they had strong motivation for coming to certain conclusions rather than others. So it's not really mm -hmm. the, the fact that they were driven to these conclusions simply by the compelling nature of the data. So, uh, so Jeff and I have been talking for a, a long time about this. Now, I'm not an intellectual historian. Um, I'm primarily an exegete and and a um, uh, a textual analysist. I would say, you know, I, my my forte is doing uh, close close examination of the vocabulary of biblical texts and especially comparative analysis of biblical texts. And so, um, I have been doing some work. Um, on the comparative analysis of prophetic texts versus Torah texts uh, that were driving me to the conclusion that the uh, Torah uh, texts were clearly earlier and, and were the source texts for different um, you know, prophetic uh, oracles. And uh, at the same time, Jeffrey Morrow was working on a, on a lot of uh, intellectual history of uh, the kind of the the counter tradition to the documentary hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, you know, you, you know, to, to uh, riff on uh, GK Chesterton, you know, if something is, is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Okay. So I thought, well, we're both working on material that calls into question the validity of the documentary hypothesis. Jeff is doing a lot of research on, the the kind of the hidden counter tradition, the hidden counter current that usually is overlooked by mainstream uh, scholarship that's presented in you know state universities, etc. You never talk about the objectors to yeah. the documentary hypothesis, but there have been hundreds yeah. and, and, and of scholars of great cali caliber who have dissented from this theory 
for a wide variety of reasons, um, from historic to linguistic to philosophical, et cetera. So Jeff was working on that. And then I was working on these, these close exegetical studies that we're also calling it into question. And we thought, well, why don't we, you know, combine our efforts and, and produce a monograph that will be, uh, you know, it'll be a little bit uneven and a little bit incomplete, um, but it's a good prelude to further study. And if we wait until, you know, we have the massive refutation, we may die. So let's just get this stuff out to the public. Mm-hmm. Maybe we will have the chance to kind of complete this project in further monographs. Maybe it will be our students, but at least we'll get this stuff available to a wider audience um, and, and to get these ideas out there. So that, that was the origins of the volume. Yeah, it's, it's great. It does cover a lot of people over, or scholars over the past couple, several centuries that have objected to this documentary hypothesis. But let's go let get into a little bit of the specifics of the book here. Because uh, one of the area you focus on the book is exegetical arguments against this. And so often what you hear is that the Pentateuch was just written during the exile. This did not come about until uh, Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and the Jews were taken into exile. And then they started writing a history. And so it's a common argument online that this was all just written during the exile. Okay, so you argue in the book it has to be much older than the exile. Can you briefly lay out... Uh, why you think that is the case? Why? What are some reasons to think the Pentateuch goes back prior to the exile? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's there's two um, two or three uh, dominant lines of evidence that point to the antiquity of the Pentateuch. One major um, source of evidence is the fact that the prophetic literature is clearly borrowing language from the Pentateuch. And when you add it up, all the different parts of the Pentateuch are being referred to or quoted at various times, especially in uh, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We could throw Hosea in there as well, although I do less work on Hosea. The the most work that I've done has been on Ezekiel and then secondarily uh, Jeremiah. But um, there are passages of Jeremiah, you know, of both those passages. uh, both those prophets, uh, some very important ones would be Jeremiah 34, um, which which draws, it's, it's a narrative dealing with the uh, setting free of slaves in Jerusalem during the waning years of the Davidic monarchy. And there in Jeremiah 34, the prophet clearly is uh, appropriating very rare specific terminology from Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25, which are two uh, passages about manumission, or or manumission is the technical term for uh, letting your slaves go free. And uh, Leviticus 25 is the Jubilee year law, uh, which has some peculiarities, and uh, Deuteronomy 15 is uh, a seven-year law of slave release, and there's discussion about how did these laws interact with one another or were they ever observed together, et cetera. But for our, for our purposes, it, it suffices to say that Jeremiah is using both. Now, okay, so that's just one instance. And there's, there's hundreds of other instances throughout Jeremiah. And then even more uh, examples in Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel 20 is a famous chapter where the prophet recites essentially the story of Israel's origins from the exodus into the settlement of the land, 
using a lot of a lot of language from both Deuteronomy and um, the uh, in Leviticus, which in um, critical parlance would be from the D from both D and P. Okay, and uh, and fusing it together in a new oracle. And, and Ezekiel does this throughout his book. Like the the entire book of Ezekiel is like a mosaic of quotations or allusions or literary dependence uh, of various forms on the Pentateuchal literature. Now, the great thing about Jeremiah and Levitic and, and Ezekiel is that we can linguistically date them solidly to the 6th century. Um, there's strong linguistic reasons for, for looking at the Hebrew of Jeremiah and Ezekiel as being a transitional form of Hebrew from, from what we call classical biblical Hebrew to what we call late biblical Hebrew. There, there are some very distinctive linguistic changes that happen to the Hebrew language uh, due to the Babylonian exile, such that when they return from the Babylonian exile, they're speaking a form of Hebrew that is distinctive. It's still mutually intelligible, intelligible with pre-exilic Hebrew, but has a lot of linguistic patterns, some vocabulary differences, some grammar differences that are distinct. And it's easy to recognize, and you can recognize it in Chronicles, in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and other books that clearly present themselves as being post-exilic. But then the, the core books, the, uh, the core historical books, you know, what's, what's uh, often called the primary history, Genesis through 2 Kings, that's all written in what we call classical biblical Hebrew, which is generally understood to be pre-exilic Hebrew. And then Jeremiah and Ezekiel are transitional between that. Mm -hmm. So we have strong linguistic reasons. We, we also have strong historical reasons and theological reasons for, um, for believing that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were written as they present themselves uh, at the end of the Davidic monarchy and into the early exile, and then they stop. They're, they're completed in the early exile. And the reason for that is, there's no references in Jeremiah or Ezekiel to anything that happens after about the midpoint of the Babylonian exile. And you, you just don't have that. And they don't have that perspective. Um, and a lot of the oracles in Ezekiel and Jeremiah are kind of awkward uh, based on how the return from Babylon actually took place. Um so it's, it's not, you know, the, the stuff in Ezekiel and Jeremiah definitely has a pre-exilic perspective. It doesn't seem to be aware at all of how things actually turned out with the Persian restoration of uh, Jerusalem. So you have linguistic as well as like a uh, kind of a historical perspective argument for firmly grounding these. And, and scholars have worked in this. You know, Avi Hurwitz has done a lot of work on the language of Ezekiel. This is going back to the 80s with his um, with his dissertation on the language of Ezekiel that was published, I think, in 1980 by Gabalda in in uh, in Paris, and then um, and then more recently Aaron Horncole from Oxford. Um, that's the Oxford or Cambridge. I'm pretty darn sure he's from Oxford. Uh, it produced a whole monograph within the past uh, five or six years on the language of Jeremiah. Um, showing that it was, you know, it's it's clearly sixth century Hebrew. So I know that was, you know, kind of, you know, kind of a high resolution discussion yeah. there for a minute. 
But uh, to, to sum it up, if we have these late monarchic prophets, late monarchic, early exilic prophets who are already drawing generously from virtually all parts of the Torah, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, then it, with, 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 with linguistic precision, you know, oftentimes like very specific, rare terms, terms that were archaic within the lifetime of Jeremiah and Ezekiel themselves. It, and, and they're drawing on these terms. And, you know, for all the world, it looks like they're drawing them from the Pentateuch. Then, then what it looks like is we've got a completed Pentateuch at the at least by the end of the monarchic period, you know, and and this cannot be written then in the post-exilic period. Um, that just doesn't make sense. And and there there are various rules of thumb that scholars come up with to to determine whether a text is um, whether a text is uh, uh, a dependent text. Uh, or a source text, you know, whether, whether text is, which text is borrowing from which. And Wellhausen and the other German pioneers of the documentary hypothesis tried to argue that the, the Pentateuch is drawing on the prophets, and that explains the occasional close <laughs> linguistic relationship. But, and, and, it's, and people have tried to make that work, but you can't. It, it does not work. And one of the biggest reasons it doesn't work is because the phenomena of conflation. You know, like Deuteronomy has a rather distinctive literary style and everybody recognizes it and I don't dispute it. And the priestly liter the, the, the so-called priestly literature, which is more like really the it's like the cultic, the cultic legislation of the Pentateuch. Okay. It also has a certain literary style to it. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, canon law has a kind of literary style. There's like some stilted language that you use when you're discoursing as a canonist, you know? Mm -hmm. So these discourses in the Pentateuch have some, dis whereas Deuteronomy is a homiletical style. That's Moses preaching. Whereas Exodus through Numbers, it's, this le it's a cultic legislative style. Now, so we re that's widely recognized, and both conservatives and liberals recognize that within the Pentateuch. But what you find in Jeremiah and Ezekiel <coughs> is side-by-side -side conflation, where you'll have a, a quote or an allusion to Deuteronomy, and then you'll have some appropriation of some very distinctive language from, say, Leviticus. And they'll be side-by-side. -side. We call that conflation or juxtaposition. And that is that is a that is the gold standard of of an of a sign or evidence of a literarily dependent text that is to say a text that is borrowing from other texts okay it is really really hard to explain how um two separate authors a d author and a p author would write in the exilic period and be quoting from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and disentangling, you see what I mean? Disentangling mm -hmm. their conflated quotations. Right. And, and, and teasing them apart and somehow using Ezekiel. But, you know, if you argue, for example, that, that the priestly materials were written in the exile, you, you'd have to argue that some author was using Ezekiel but uh, but never, ever borrowed any of the deuteronomically influenced material from Ezekiel, only ever borrowed the priestly influence. And that, that's a contrived 
you know, scenario. That's a, it's a, it's a non-working hypothesis. So I don't know if everybody followed that, but, you know, to, to wrap it up, to wrap up that line of evidence, you know, we have these uh, strongly datable prophets, these sixth century prophets. We have strong reason to, to date their books in that time period. They're drawing in the Pentateuch. So therefore, the Pentateuch has to be pre-exilic, at least. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's further reason for pushing it further forward. Uh, but that's one line of evidence. Well, let's talk more about that because when I when I read <laughs> scholars like uh, Richard Elliott Friedman, for example, or uh, they, they tend to say, no, no, the, the, this idea among I guess you could say layman online that it's all exilic. It's just it's just not accurate. There are there are pre-exilic traditions in here, but they try to place uh, the material in the Pentateuch to maybe the time of Josiah, Josiah's reforms. Uh, you argue that it's even older, uh, so let's talk about a little bit more lines of evidence that it has to go even further back than even just some the early or the uh, excuse me the later pre-exilic times. Yeah, yeah. One of the strongest reasons that it can't be from the Josianic age is that nothing in the Pentateuch reflects the the Zion theology that begins to really impact Israel with the ascension of David and the choice of Jerusalem as a capital. Okay, when you look at when you look at material, um, okay, Josiah is seventh century. Um, Hezekiah is a century before Josiah, and we have a lot of oracles from Isaiah and Micah that you know are undisputed eighth century oracles. Okay, that's the seven hundreds. You know oracles from the time of Hezekiah's rebellion against Sennacherib and that huge battle and all that stuff. And so um, what what those oracles from Micah and Isaiah and other early prophets show is that you have a strong theology of Zion, of, um, of the holy city, Jerusalem, and the temple, and the Davidide, okay, the the heir of David, you know, that's, that's the triple, th- those are the three legs of the stool of Zion theology is the, um, the son of David and the temple and the, uh, the holy place of Jerusalem. Okay. Zion. All right. So uh, we, we have strong documentation of that theology being dominant in Judea already from the time of Hezekiah. And I think it goes back all the way to David and Solomon. Um, J.G.M. Roberts from Princeton uh, argues that. He's got several essays, you know, arguing that, look, this Zion theology authentically begins with David and Solomon, you know, in the um, the 10th and uh, the early 9th century. So um, you have that. And none of that is in the Pentateuch, Okay. Hey, newsflash for everybody. Zion and Jerusalem are never mentioned in the books of Moses. They play absolutely no role. Okay. Now, a couple of things. uh, Granted, um, Melchizedek uh, is called King of Salem in Genesis 14. And Salem is an archaic name for Jerusalem. So there's like a little incidental reference there. But, But there's not even a gloss Okay, by a redactor saying this was really Jerusalem. And there's some textual confusion. And some people think that originally it said that Melchizedek was from Shechem. Okay, so it's it's a real tenuous uh, and and uh, oblique reference to Jerusalem, if at all. Um, and so, some people don't even think it is. So that's in Genesis 14. And then you have the reference to a mountain in the land of Moriah where 
uh, Abraham attempts to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. And later tradition made that more specific and identified the Temple Mount as Mount Moriah, as we see in um, Second Chronicles. Um, so there's these, you know, two oblique ref, uh, references. But the word Zion never occurs in the Pentateuch. The word Jerusalem never occurs. And there is no Zion theology in uh, the Pentateuch. And there's virtually no, um, there's, there's not even... Um, there's not even much of a sign of the later uh, precedence that the tribe of Judah would, would attain in the Pentateuch other than a couple verses in the blessing of uh, Judah by his father in Genesis 49. It's, 40, it's uh, Genesis 49, uh, 9 and 10 or 10 and 11, right in there, okay? You have the blessing of Judah um, that uh, speaks of him as, uh, you know, as receiving the scepter or at least having the scepter until he comes to whom it belongs. And that's a, a, a textually difficult, textually debated little, little passage. But aside from that, okay, the whole Pentateuch really aggrandizes Joseph and Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. You know, I noticed this even as a kid. My mom made me read the Bible through in a year uh, when I was a child. And um, I was always struck by you get up to Deuteronomy and you're really expecting that the that uh, the ball is going to be carried by Ephraim and Manasseh going forward. Like they're going to run the ball down the field and, and bring us the Messiah. But once you get out of the Pentateuch, you know, a different play gets called and all of a sudden Judah rises to prominence and Judah becomes the ball carrier and and the source of the Messiah. And I, I noticed that even as a child, it's, it's you, you don't even have to read in the original language uh, to notice this kind of sea change in the books between um, you know Deuteronomy and into First Samuel. And then all of a sudden, in First Samuel sixteen, we have David, and then from from First Samuel sixteen to the end of uh, the Old Testament, it's all about David, Zion, and the temple. Okay, so that theology is not present. So to me. Michael, this is one of the strongest possible reasons for why the Pentateuch has to be early. And that is, after the rise of David, the Pentateuch is theologically awkward in certain ways for, uh, for the Jerusalem priesthood, okay? It doesn't deliver all the things that you would like it to deliver if you are trying to argue for a central sanctuary in Jerusalem. If you're trying to argue for a central sanctuary, um, actually your best bet would actually be Shechem based on the Pentateuch. Shechem is the city that's in the valley between Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. And at the conclusion of the Pentateuch, Joshua, to, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, do, um, Moses instructs the people to go across the Jordan and to solemnize the covenant between God and his people on the twin peaks of Ebal and Gerizim, which were on either side of Shechem. And then if you do a study of Shechem in the Pentateuch and elsewhere in the Bible, you find that Shechem was really the natural capital and the more geographically central capital of early Israel. And it was on the border between Ephraim and Manasseh, kind of in the very heartland of Israel. So it's not theologically insurmountable, but it is theologically awkward that 
um, in the books of Moses, you have this emphasis on the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and especially the figure of Joseph, and he is really valorized. And then Judah plays a secondary role throughout the Pentateuch to Joseph's primary role. But then that's not actually how things panned out with the splitting of the kingdom and everything and uh, Judah really rising to prominence. So, you know, to me, this is the strongest possible reason, because if you're trying to argue, OK, something can be faked. All right. Then you bring up linguistic data and you say, well, a very clever faker could fake the linguistic data and fake this and fake that. But when you could say that, look, this isn't even in the interests of especially a figure like Ezra. OK. The, the, the Pentateuch is theologically awkward in many ways for what Ezra is trying to do, you know, reestablish um, the, the Babylon exiles in, in Jerusalem and Judea. So it's not the kind of document that they would write if they were writing a fiction to support a Judean restoration in the post-exilic period. If you want an example of what they would write, look at the Book of Jubilees. <laughs> the Book of Jubilees is your post-exilic uh, Pentateuchal redaction thing written to support um, a, a restoration in Jerusalem. And it delivers on the Zion theology and it, it retrojects the prominence of Jerusalem all the way back to creation and, and all those kind of things that you would want it to do if, if your uh, you know agenda is to reestablish a religious state focused on the Jerusalem temple. But the, the word temple never occurs in the tabernacle. Moses commands that a temporary tent shrine be constructed that moves around the peop with the people. That's awkward. If that's what Moses said, then what are we doing with a stone temple in Jerusalem? Well, there's good reason why we have a stone temple in Jerusalem, but those good reasons do not come from the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch right. does not support a Jerusalem-centric um, you know, stone temple. So <clears throat> I think this is very strong. Okay. This is very strong uh, argument that it's, it's not, um, you know, not as so to speak in the interests of the, the Judean state after the rise of David to produce a document like this. The reason they kept it around was that it was authentically old. It was authentically authoritative because it really does go back. You know, I'm going to say, to the time of Moses, okay? This this represents the legacy of Moses and it was treasured. And um, <clears throat> there, is, there is a theological path ultimately to Zion theology, but it's indirect. And, um, and the, you know, the, the Torah itself does not go directly there. Yeah, and I think that's phenomenally well put. Uh, you also can think like, why would, if this was like, putting so much prominence on Ephraim, maybe you could say the Northern Kingdom wrote it. But then why would the Judai priests in Jerusalem adopt it. it, like use it, like what you mentioned in the book? It just seems like this goes back to a time before David, before Solomon. And then you take your work and you combine it with stuff that Joshua Berman has brought up about how this fits with Hittite treaties. Uh, the the right. structure of the Pentateuch fits with Hittite treaties from around the year 1200 BC. You take Benjamin Noonan's work, who notes there are so many Egyptian loan words in the Pentateuch, but not just Egyptian loan words, Egyptian loan words from around the year 1300 BC. Right, right. You, know, you take and all the, of and, this. And the structure of the tabernacle looks like Ramses II war tent, okay? <laughs> it, where Ramses sat enthroned between two cherubim in a like an inner room 
within this, you know, so you have this uh, Egyptian cultural realia being reflected in these passages, but I, I'm sorry for interrupting you there. No, no, no. I, I love how you, you're excited about it because you're, you're excited about it for the same reasons I am. There's just so many arguments. Like when I've read like scholars like Joel Baden or Jeffrey Stacker, there's so many arguments for the early dating and the unification of the Pentateuch. They're just, just, they don't even, they don't even mention, they don't even acknowledge their existence. But let's right. let's talk a little bit about the documentary hypothesis, and then we'll get to some super chats. If we've got the time, we've got a, a hard deadline we got to hit with uh, Dr. Bergsman here. Uh, but uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the documentary hypothesis with you. So yeah, so it's I've criticized it a lot on this channel. I have my my seven part series. I'm going to be doing more videos on it probably in November, uh, going through Genesis and continuing all that. But can you briefly tell us problems you see with it? Uh, why? Why should we, this entire theory just be abandoned in your view? It's it's just so helpful, uh, just so unhelpful. Um, you know, I, I approach the whole question of the documentary hypothesis uh, more for the more from the perspective of the laws than the narratives. Okay, so a lot of the work that was done on the um, on the documentary hypothesis really is done by people that are analyzing the narratives, especially of Genesis, because it, it's really only in Genesis that you get these. The doublets that they that they like to use and say, well, this is J and this is E, you know, and this kind of thing. Um, and I, I'm coming from it from a legal perspective. And um, and uh, one of the one of the major problems that I see in the documentary hypothesis is that uh, Wellhausen, the kind of the the crystallizer or the synthesizer of this hypothesis placed the the cultic legislation of the Pentateuch last in his sequence of the composition of the Pentateuch. And uh, that's called the priestly source, right? And the the one of the biggest problems with that is if you've got the the priestly source being written after Deuteronomy, you ought to have some kind of evidence of the literary influence of Deuteronomy on the priestly source. You should see borrowings. You should see um, terminology being used. You should see Deuteronomic terms showing up in the priestly legislation. And that just does not exist. People claim it, but the evidence is so thin. The evidence is, is laughable. You know, people, you know, top rate scholars will, will make arguments based on very common Hebrew words, you know, just basic vocabulary and say, well, look, you know, uh, the P source has this and it's taking it from Deuteronomy. And you're like, hey, that's a high frequency Hebrew word. I mean, everybody, you, how, how do you even how do you even use the language without using such basic vocabulary? That's not really the distinctive language. And, and, and as I've shown elsewhere in, in my publication in the, in the James Vanderkam Festschrift, if you look at like the really unique terminology of Deuteronomy, none of that really unique uh, or characteristic stuff shows up in uh, in the priestly source. So you have a major problem there where, where the priestly source is clearly not uh, the last thing being written. Now, as far as the sources go themselves, what one of the major problems there is that scholars ignore um, uh, contextual reasons for uh, some of the differences that are observed in, in diction or language use. So um, you know, it's it said, oh, well, the priestly source has this distinctive, uh, you know, terminology. And, and that's true to a certain extent. Yes. But it's like it's like canon law. 
You know, like I said before, like that's what you're writing. You know, you're not writing a children's story. You know, if you write a children's story, you would you would use different kinds of expression. And and it's not a sermon either. If you wrote a sermon, you you and the same author can write in different genres. You know, I if if you compare, for example, I've got a little yellow book that I wrote for evangelism called Yes, There is a God and Other Answers to Life's Big Questions. And it has no vocabulary that a 12-year-old cannot understand. It is very simple. It's It uses short, active voice sentences, no compound sentences, um, no religious vocabulary. They asked me, don't use any religious vocabulary because we want to pass this out on the street. Okay. I wrote it, though. Okay. Every single word, and I edited it as well. So there's nothing. Nobody helped me with that book. That's my authentic work. But then you compare that with my dissertation, okay, or um, uh, Murmuring Against Moses or something like that. And you would never come to the conclusion that the same author wrote both of those things. <laughs> you know, again, look at Plato's corpus, all right? Compare um, Socrates' apology with the laws, all right? Very different uh, in terms of literary style. One is very vivacious and entertaining and engaging, and the laws are just like really monotonous. And they represent different stages of his thought and different stages of his life. Um, Look at Mark Twain, you know, the difference between, say, Joan of Arc and Huckleberry Finn, you know, Mm -hmm. etc. So what I'm saying is, Michael, um, scholars ignore the contextual reasons for differences in literary style between different bodies within uh, the literature. Also, when we when you get into the Pentateuch, uh, one of the fundamental reasons for the distinction the distinction between, say, the J and the E source was based on the use of divine names. And again, here scholars ignore the fact that there can be contextual reasons for why the term God is used versus the term the Lord. They have a different kind of nuance to them. And a lot of work has been done. This uh, Hanan C. Brichto from um, uh, from uh, um, Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati wrote an entire book called, you know, The Names of God, where he went into analyzing the different theological significance, why, why the names are being used. But let's, okay, so, so the, the, these are some broad critiques uh, of this whole theory. But, but let me especially get into the Pentateuch and, and talk about these narratives. And um, what, really, what really upsets me is, um, in the Pentateuch is this distinction between the so-called priestly source and then the J source. Okay. And one of my big issues with that, and and Benjamin Kilcore has recently written on this and, and I'd like to write on it some more because there's some more material that supports what, what Kilcore has already seen is that the, the passages of the Pentateuch that are attributed to the J source are full of, priestly and cultic uh, imagery and ideas, okay? So um, when when you got the so-called priestly narrative of the six days, right? And then you get into in that of creation in Genesis 1. And uh, and then you get into the, the, the J material, which is supposed to be Genesis 2 and 3. And um, supposedly J is supposed to be this lay source. And yet there's there's priestly terminology there. There's or cultic terminology. Like in Genesis 2.15, uh, Adam is commanded to go into the garden, or he's placed in the garden to work and to guard it. 
Well, those are cultic terms that later show up in Numbers, in the first 10 chapters of Numbers, especially Numbers 3 and Numbers 8, where the priests and the Levites are commanded to work the work and guard the guardianship uh, in the tabernacle, which meant celebrate the liturgy and keep the, the tabernacle clean from anything impure. So, so Genesis 2.15 is using loaded uh priestly terms cultic terms okay then later um we have the cherubim being placed to the east of the garden to keep adam and eve from getting back in well that presumes that there's only one entrance to guard to eden and that that entrance faced east which is a temple construction motif you know these mm -hmm. ancient near eastern temples that all faced east you know, so it goes on and on. Then you get into the flood narrative and they say, oh, yeah, we can divide the, the priestly source from the J source. Well, if you do that, if you divide up the flood narrative based on the use of divine names, what you find out is that the J source, which is supposedly supposedly a lay source, is the source that that remembers to bring along extra clean animals so that we can sacrifice them in cultic sacrifice at the end of the flood. And, and the so-called priestly source, oh, they just forgot about the fact that they're going to need to have cultic sacrificial worship at the end of the flood is the J source. Then it buried in, buried in the so-called J parts of uh, the flood narrative is um, the pleasing aroma. Okay, at the end of the flood, Noah mm -hmm. offers sacrifice and the reach nechoach, or the pleasing aroma goes up to the Lord and the Lord smells it. Reach Nehoach only ever occurs outside of that passage in the cultic material that's attributed to the priestly source uh, in Leviticus and Numbers. Reach Nehoach is a, 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 a cultic term, okay? It's a, a mm -hmm. priestly cultic term. And it's buried there in the so-called, you know, J part of the the flood narrative so as kilcore has pointed out in an essay and i would i would jump on and add some additional examples to the examples that he gives the so-called j materials of the pentateuch when you really analyze them at high resolution are full of allusions to um temple practice um cultic worship priesthood etc and thus all of the pentateuch is really imbued with so-called priestly ideas, you know, cultic ideas. There isn't, there, there's no division between this. And, and that undercuts um, the, the fundamental criteria for the division into those two primary sources. Yeah, for, real quick, for anyone who's interested, uh, Benjamin Kilker sent me that paper you're referencing before it was published. Because uh, I told him I wanted to do a video on it. And so I included it in my documentary hypothesis series, which is here. And it's the second video where I basically go through a lot of the points he has in that paper. So if you want a, a quick uh, video that covers it, uh, you can watch that video and the paper's reference. So if you want to read it, you can go and download it. But we also go through the flood account as well. We talk about another paper Kilker puts out on the difference between Deuteronomy and Exodus on could Israel build one altar or many. Uh, Richard Steiner helped me with the video on alleged two accounts of Joseph being sold into slavery. So there's a lot of stuff here that uh, Dr. Bergsma is hitting on, but you can get into a lot more details in this series that I put out. And Dr. Bergsma, with regarding the priestly source, I was just reading a book last week uh, on it called Farewell to the Priestly, Farewell to the Priestly Writing, 
Uh, and in it, they're trying to salvage the priestly source, but they have to admit, like Erhard Bloom has to admit now, there is no complete priestly source in the Pentateuch. So he's right. got to he's got to come up with this this theory that maybe it was like a rough draft of certain stories, but then they just decided to combine it with it. So it wasn't even a source, but it wasn't a redactional layer either, because neither of those works. So they have to like they have to finesse it to sort of make it fit, right. but it's just it's so hard to actually get the sources in the Pentateuch that the documentary hypothesis advocates say are there. And they're just, they're not there. And you get these very convoluted theories that just violate parsimony now when it just makes more sense to say that maybe this was a unified work and we've read too much into this, these different languages or these alleged duplicates. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in total agreement with that. And um, that's part of been part of one of the weaknesses of theory from the beginning. And you go all the way back to Leo the 13th and Providentismus Deus. And already Leo was uh, Pope Leo was pointing out um, that, uh, you know, um, uh, Old Testament critics are like snowflakes. I mean, there's there's no two alike. N nobody comes down on the exact same analysis of what the sources are. You know, and are they really sources or are they redactional layers? You know, and 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 so in the 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 field is so diverse, and that that's a real weakness. If if there was strong empirical evidence for this, then what you would see is a greater consistency among scholars approaching with these methods yes. and always coming out with the same thing. And instead, you get such diversity, even even among people who have no theological, you know, resistance to slicing and dicing the Pentateuch like Erhard Bloom, okay? And he's, yeah, as you say, trying to salvage. And it's like, well, yeah, but it doesn't quite work. So, um, and then at the end of the day, you say, well, what is the theological payoff from all of this source criticism? Has it really advanced our understanding of the final form of the text? And the answer to that is no. I mean, I challenge my fellow scholars, like, you know, show me one you know, genuine, rich theological insight that has arisen from specifically source criticism of the Pentateuch. <laughs> and the, the only result of the whole enterprise is it's never been theological in, insight. It's only been to kind of undermine confidence in the narrative or, um, mm -hmm. or to undermine the theological conclusions that Jews and Christians have traditionally derived from the text. So, you know, another... Um, I'll just briefly, also on this issue, you know, there are there are three covenant-making episodes in the Abrahamic narrative that have been noticed and then attributed to different uh, redactors. You know, so in Genesis 15, you have the covenant between the pieces. In Genesis 17, you've got the covenant of circumcision. And then in Genesis 22, this is less noticed, but you have that divine oath from God um, and uh, oath and covenant are very closely related concepts, and you already find you you find already that um, early Jewish literature and certainly even the Gospels recognize Genesis twenty two as a covenant making episode where God's unilateral oath to Abraham in Genesis twenty two fifteen through eighteen um, finalized the covenantal relationship between. To God and Abraham. So, you know, Genesis 15 is attributed to uh, J and Genesis 17 to P. And then mm -hmm. there's discussion about, you know, where to, who to attribute Genesis 22, 15 uh, through 18 for. And, and the idea is, well, you can't have multiple um, 
covenant making episodes between God and Abraham. But actually, there's narrative reasons for this, you know, and one of them is between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, Abraham takes on Hagar and has an unintended heir, Ishmael. And that necessitates God's intervention and the remaking and the reorganization of the covenant because it was never in the divine intent that the covenant flow to Ishmael. It was supposed to flow to the natural son of Abraham and Sarah. And so you have an intervention in Genesis 17 where God, you know, rebukes Abraham at the beginning of that chapter and says, you know, uh, walk before me and be righteous, which implies you haven't been doing that, you know. And then Mm -hmm. we have to remake the covenant. And in 17, uh, it's very specifically uh, articulated that the covenant's going to flow to Isaac, who's the son of Abraham and Sarah. So these, uh, again, you know, folks notice that there's some kind of repetition and then quickly jump to a source critical explanation for it when actually there's narrative explanations for why you have these, why you have to remake the covenant, because if you don't, you're going to have the covenant flowing to the Ishmaelites, you know, and and, and likewise into, into 22. And in fact, actually, um, Scott Hahn has, has made a real contribution by showing that the, um, the sequence of 15, 17, and 22 follows the, the uh, blessings that are articulated in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make uh, a great nation of you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. And if you, if you follow the themes of Genesis 15, 17, and 22, the theme of 15 is all about great nationhood. The theme of 17 is about Abram's name being great, which implies dynastic rule and, and, and a kingship. And his name, that's actually where his name is made into Abraham. Mm-hmm. And then um, in, uh, in chapter 22, there's a strong theme of all the nations will eventually be blessed through your seed. So it, it actually follows. So there's a, an integrated pattern here that is foreshadowed from the, from the blessings that introduce Abraham in chapter 12. And that shows you that a, there, there's a mind at work here. There's, there's, a, there's an integration and a thematic pattern going on and that these variations are not simply the result of a bumbling redactor you know, throwing together disparate stories in some kind of order. Right. And I want to get to super chats here because uh, we're going to uh, have a hard stop at about a half hour or so. Uh, but I do want to add one thing is that Gary Rensberg has got a great book called The Redaction of Genesis, where he covers a lot of what Dr. Bergman was talking about. And a lot of source critics make this distinction about, well, the P source uses Elohim and the J source uses the divine name. But if you look in the Abraham cycle, specifically Genesis uh, 11, 27 to 22, the name change happens right in Genesis 17 with Abraham. This is also in the Abraham cycle when the divine name uh, starts being used interchangeably with Elohim. So it's like Abraham and Sarah get their name change. God also should get a name change as well right in there. So it actually makes sense in the larger picture. The names, the different names which are often used to divide up the sources of the Pentateuch, actually makes sense in the unified narrative if you look at where the name change is happening. So I did want to throw that in there because I remember Rensberg pointed that out in his book. But yeah, Dr. Bergman, you and I could talk about this for hours because there's just so much evidence for the early dating of the Pentateuch, so much evidence against the documentary hypothesis. But I want to be respectful of your time. So let's get to some super chats here because a lot of people have sent in some great questions for you. So there's a channel called Myth Vision. Uh, it's run by an a- atheist, I know, uh, a friend of mine named De- Derek uh, 
and he has he's been doing a lot of stuff on his channel on this idea that maybe Genesis borrowed stories, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, Tower of Babel, Enoch, uh, from Mesopotamian literature or other surrounding aspects. What are your thoughts on Genesis? Maybe these stories in Genesis coming from borrowed uh, pagan legends or Mesopotamian legends? Yeah, no, um, there. Um, if we if we understand that you know humanity has a common cultural origin, then you're going to get variations of the paradigmatic stories of humanity's uh, early uh, formation, and you're going to get variations of these being passed down and 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 different among different cultures. But you're going to see uh, commonalities. Um, the uh, the accounts of Cain, Abel, Adam and Eve, Tower of Babel, etc. You can find similar stories in other cultures, which again, should not surprise us, but I would argue they're not being borrowed from Mesopotamia. These are the Israelite versions, if you will, of these foundational stories of humanity that were passed down within the culture of Israel, just as you know, versions of those events were passed down within Mesopotamian culture. Uh, so it's, it's the, the similarity comes from um, ultimately the fact that humanity is one and we go back to a common uh, cultural and biological origin and not that, oh, you know, in the post-exilic period for the first time, some Israelite scribe is reading some Mesopotamian legends like, oh, I'll make an Israelite version of that. You know, <laughs> No, they had they had an account within their cult. Every culture ha has to have accounts of the early origins. And um, and these were these were the, the traditional accounts that were passed down within the people of Israel. Uh, I'd also like to add really quickly, it's like when it comes to like the flood account, you can't have it both because you'll get scholars that say that um, this was borrowing from like the Mesopotamian flood legends, but it's also J and P. How is it that J and P <laughs> were combined to look just like the flood story of Epic of Gilgamesh? And I'd refer people to Mark Smith's book, God in Translation. Uh, he actually argues that it, same with the book, The Lost World of the Flood with John Walton and Tremper Longman. They say that, look, there are similarities here, but it's more likely there's not literary borrowing. It's that they're, they're, they're coming from similar oral traditions handed down that uh, Dr. Bergsman has just talked about here. And that's probably far more likely than the idea that the Israelites were just trying to borrow legends. It, it just seems like it's too much of a stretch from the data that we have now. Uh, so my uh thank you to michael daniel for becoming a youtube member much appreciated uh thoughts on the historicity of the book of esther dr bergsma yeah yeah so i do i do believe that esther is historical but uh uh we do have to reckon with some historical difficulties um one of the major ones for example is the name of the queen that esther replaces um, in Herodotus, uh, it's given as a mistress or something similar to that. And you'll have to forgive me because it's been a few years since I was uh, deep into the literature. Um, and uh, it's Vashti in uh, the Bible. And um, but, you know, the, the, the um, names are a difficult thing when you when you cross between cultures and different cultures uh, really scramble up names. Think about the name Jacob in Hebrew comes out as Diego in Spanish and James in English. Okay. <laughs> like, how did that happen? Well, I can actually explain how you get from Jacob to James um, by about 10 different steps. But, 
you get this kind of thing. And, you know, Germany is Deutschland, but we call it Germany, but the French call it Alemania. You know, so, um, <laughs> you, you know, so this, you know, the, the difference in, in, in naming is, is not a big deal for me. The other thing is with, with some of the other, um, you know, uh, accusate or, or issues of, of a historical nature with, uh, with the book of Esther, um, it, it's often just knee-jerk assumed that, well, if the Bible, uh, you know, disagrees with, say, Herodotus, okay, that uh, Herodotus is correct and, and the Bible is not. Well, wait a second here, you know, uh, Herodotus um, has a lot of stuff that is legendary and that he's getting second and third hand and so on. And he can, can be confused about certain things. There appears to be, for example, a, a garbled account of Sennacherib's attack on Jerusalem under the reign of Hezekiah in Herodotus, where Herodotus gets several of the details wrong. So we have to we have to allow for that, allow for the fact that secular sources uh, can also be incorrect. Um, but um, you know, someone who's good on this um, uh, is uh, oh gee. Oh my gosh, I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> well, if you if you remember, yeah. just email yeah, yeah. me, and what I can do is I can pin a comment below the video and put it in there, and it'd be right. easy to do that. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, absolutely. I'll uh, uh, there's there's a scholar at Miami uh, University of Ho of uh, Ohio um, who has done quite a bit of work in this area. It'll come to me in just a minute, but um, yeah, no yeah. worries. If you think of it, just let me know. Uh, another question: Do you think Manetho's writings provide evidence for the Israeli Exodus? I appreciate your insight, John. Loved your appearance on Matt Fred's podcast. Real quick before you answer, just so people are aware, when it comes to the Exodus, uh, Doctor David Falk and I have done a series, a big documentary series, uh, on evidence for the Exodus during the Ramazide period, uh, going up through the conquest, and we cover the latest reports on Jericho and a ton of evidence for the Exodus itself and the conquest. But what are your thoughts on this, Dr. Bergsma? Yeah, I'm not an authority on this because I've not worked with Manitho. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I can't comment except except to say that, um, you know, the fact that he is uh, an Egyptian who is really not favorable towards Judaism, but is yet willing to concede uh, some of the basic claims of the Jewish people, um, you know, speaks for the veracity of scripture. But getting back to um, uh, Esther, uh, it comes back to me. Edwin Yamauchi, okay? Edwin oh. Yamauchi uh, from uh, Miami University of Ohio. He's got a great book called Persia and the Bible. And he deals with some of the, uh, you know, historical issues in um, the book of Esther. Uh, and, and that is uh, really a helpful resource. This is the problem with having a scholar like you on and my reading list just keeps adding and <laughs> never get to them all. Uh, yeah. Thank you for the super chat there. I do appreciate it. Uh, just a comment. I think participation in the stream calls for extra credit. The one, four, one, three thing. So yes, everyone who is participating in the stream today <laughs> gets extra credit. Let your professor know. Uh, generally, what specific reasons do you think old Testament scholars throughout recent years were resistant to non-source critical theories like the documentary supplementary, et cetera. Yeah, it's because the, docu the documentary hypothesis became uh, ensconced and it began, it had, it, it, it had, and it continues to have 
um, iconic value for um, for the Enlightenment-inspired critique of traditional Christianity and Judaism. So there's been a there's just been an anti-Judaic, anti-Christian, rationalist um, uh, intellectual movement that has its roots in the Enlightenment and continues to this day. And the documentary hypothesis represented a great victory for this intellectual movement over adherence of traditional re religion. And they are loath to let it slip from their fingers. Mm -hmm. They really do not want it to be widely known and admitted that this, that this hypothesis no longer holds water, that it, that it, it can no longer be defended uh, in against the, the data that we now have in, in contemporary scholarship, because it would be to admit that they were wrong and that this great, you know, this great victory of reason over religion um, turned out to be uh, false. And so for the same reason that Darwinism uh, continues to be advocated and, and has a kind of iconic status within our culture, even though there's, there's uh, you know, modern genetics has, has produced a great deal of trouble for Darwinian scenarios and the fossil record, um, has always been a major problem for Darwinism and continues to get worse for Darwinism. Despite all that, we don't get a new paradigm um, because the old paradigm uh, has this iconic value as these were these great moments and these great thinkers. You know, Wellhausen and Darwin, um, respectively, are kind of like um, saints, you know, within within biological intellectual history and within the history of biblical criticism and we can't admit that these saints were incorrect or that they got anything wrong because it it might lead to people doubting our our, our authority our academic authority they might they might begin to doubt the academy they might you know if they realize that they've been told, been been misinformed for centuries by academics they may lose their confidence in academics, they might lose their confidence in Ivy League institutions or major universities because they've been fed a line of um, of, of nonsense on certain issues for so long, and so that's that's one of, one of the reasons why these theories remain entrenched and defended, even though in private, uh, many scholars will admit the weaknesses and the problems and etc. Yet when they you know, if, if they're challenged in public, they kind of circle the wagons and say, yeah, this is this is the truth. And um, and, you know, for any if you take a 100 level class, you're going to be told that, hey, this is the way it is. You know, and this is just the the established results of um, of modern scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'm collecting those problems right now, so I'll be sure to get them all out in the videos. Uh, next question. Do you, did Abe, Adam, Abraham, and Isaac exist? Yeah, absolutely. Clearly humanity had a, an original father and in the Israelite tradition, the first father of the human race uh, is traditionally named Adam. You know, other cultures give him other names, but uh, yeah, Adam is a historical figure. Um, the first father of, of the human race, the first human uh, humanity had to start sometime. Um, and uh, so it's kind of a logical necessity, but, you know, I don't believe it simply by logic, but of course, by, by a revelation as well. Abraham, absolutely a historical figure. Isaac, absolutely a historical figure. 
Um, they, they fit well into the second millennium BC, the kinds of things that they are doing. Abraham wandering around, for example, in Israel and stopping and hobnobbing with local kings and stuff like that. That wasn't possible um, in the first millennium BC. That kind of that kind of cultural uh, situation where you have large nomadic uh, clans and then uh, individual city states and a lot of like unclaimed territory in between that really only existed uh, like uh, in in new during the New Kingdom Egypt uh, uh, time period and um, and uh, so that that fits plus you know recently. Um, you know, the whole account of uh, Abraham witnessing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, you know, sensational work that's been done by Steve Collins on Tel El Hammam over in Jordan, showing that those two mounds uh, that he's working on over there uh, have an enormous amount of evidence supporting that they are actually biblical Sodom and Gomorrah and that they were wiped out by um by a, a heat blast from the sky that you could explain as a, as a meteor blast or something similar to that. But, but uh, regardless, um, they clearly were devastated by a heat blast from the sky in the second millennium BC, um, which, which gives you, you know, a, a, a time, a, a datable event that the Bible says that Abraham witnessed where you can situate Abraham within, within, um, you know, uh, independently verified history. So yeah, Abraham and Isaac, um, absolutely. I believe they're historical figures. Anybody who wants to know more about um, historicity of Abraham and Isaac, this is a great book here on the reliability of the Old Testament by the Godfather, Kenneth Kitchen himself. Uh, And I did a video called Biblical Archaeology Abraham, where I go through some of those Kitchen's points and point out that a lot of, there's so many correlations that later authors just could not have made up with like around the year 1800 BC, these specific correlations, like the coalition of Kings, the different treaties, the slave price of Joseph, for example, is another good one. All of that really fits to a reliable account handed down, not later myth makers. So check out that. You can check out my video as well on that. Uh, in the same, uh, in the same strand, man or myth is Job. If man, where would he fit in the biblical timeline? Been enjoying the interview. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the uh, Jewish and Christian tradition uh, treat Job as a real person, and so does Jesus. And um, well, I should qualify that the New Testament. Okay, um, so this is a faith position. Okay, I don't have external evidence for Job's life, um, but I do believe, based on the fact that within uh, within the Christian tradition, he's um, uh, understood by, for example, um, uh, the uh, unanimously by the church fathers, he's understood as a real person, that Job is a real person. Now, the book of Job, however, uh, clearly has stylized literary features mm-hmm. that make it look like a play. So what I, my approach to Job is say, yes, Job was a, a suffering saint. He was legendary for his sufferings and for his righteousness, and people remembered him because he did not give up on his relationship with God, et cetera, all of that. And then someone, an unknown inspired author, um, uh, composes a play based on his life. And this would be like Shakespeare uh, composing a play on the life of one of the Henrys of England, et cetera. So we're, we're the, we're, 
were the various Henrys of England, were they historic? Obviously. Um, but is, is uh, Shakespeare's play, you know, a, a, a strictly chrono chronological, you know, historical record? Well, no, it's, it's, it's a play. It's a different kind of genre, right? So Joe, the Book of Job can be performed. It has been performed by actors. You know, you need about uh, seven or eight uh, characters for the different friends in Job, and they, they kind of go in patterns of cycles um, of who speaks first. And it's always in the same order, uh, et cetera. Uh, so that is that is how I view it. Uh, the book is in the book is inspired. We we treat it as inspired because it's been received as inspired um, by the church, and um, uh, you know based on history, but with a a kind of a literary genre of a of a play or a performance. Yeah, I really like the way you put it because I remember you mentioning that on Punch with Aquinas. I was like, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it because I've always thought it's definitely legendary elements in that in there for sure and it does come across it's like a play kind of mm -hmm. thing so yeah i think that's a great way to with long it. soliloquies yeah yeah so uh that's the last question i have for you the last one is for me hey ip when will you do a q a for your patrons and for those who donate become donors to help me keep making videos uh every three months i do a private q a where i answer every question in a live chat so if you go to the patreon link below and you sign up to donate five, 15 a month. You can join that. You also get early release to all the videos coming out, uh, including another video on the documentary hypothesis, which I have planned for November on the Abraham cycle. And I'll be going through and talking about some of the stuff that Dr. Bertram has talked about here today on how it's a unified account. It's not, it cannot be divided up between sources. And so that'll be coming out very soon. Uh, and that is, I believe the uh, last question I have for you, and which is good because we're getting close to our hard stop deadline. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, let me put the uh, uh, book up there one more time. Anything else you want to say about the book? Uh, you can get it linked below. There's a link where you can purchase it. Uh, what? Anything else about the book, Dr. Bergsma? Um, You know, just it's I, I wrote the middle three chapters and um, the first three and the last three were written by my colleague, uh, Jeffrey Morrow. Um, readers will notice the difference in, in tone uh, because mine are very focused on like very high resolution comparison of biblical texts and some other biblical arguments. And uh, Dr. Morrow is, is doing kind of intellectual history. Um, so I think ultimately, though, it works together. Um, it's uh, it's not the final word on the subject. But again, you know, G.K. Chesterton, if you're going to do something that's worth doing badly, um, it's a start. And we just we wanted to get this material out there, get into the hands of people uh, so they can see kind of the trajectory and uh, hopefully in, in the remainder of our careers and, and the careers of our students, we can kind of like bring this all around, gather all this data and, uh, you know, eventually uh, compose a, a, you know, or I should say offer a complete alternative paradigm for how the composition of the Pentateuch took place. Yes, and it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Bergman has also contributed to this book, Paradigm Change of Pentateuchal Research and Exploring the... Uh, Composition of the Pentateuch, also great books as well. Thanks for coming on the channel today. I really appreciate your insight. I hope I encourage everyone to get this book and read it if you want to argue that the Pentateuch was not written during the exile or much later. That it, there is good evidence it can go back to the time period of Moses. Thanks for coming on today, and we really appreciate it. And hopefully, we'll have you back on if you write another book on this topic. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. 
and a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the Ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.